0: Asia Tech Podcast with Graham Brown and Michael Waits. And Michael
1: Waits. Well, and
0: welcome to Asia Tech Podcast. This is ATP 530. Graham Brown in Tokyo. Michael Waits in Bangkok. Michael, how are you doing?
2: I'm doing awesome, Graham. How are you doing?
0: Yeah, good. I had to have a think about it because it's been a rather <coughs> roller coaster week that we've had now that we've got part two of the Asia Matters report out.
2: My yeah, head I mean, is spinning. Talk, <laughs> yeah, it must be because we didn't talk a lot about like the insanity around part one, we kind of kept that to ourselves, but I think uh, we do need to share like the insanity around part two, don't you think
0: yeah, and it's an it's a story that involves my LinkedIn account being suspended
2: twice, yeah why do you think like why do you think we still don't know why why would they suspend your LinkedIn account? is it just such an overwhelming response? I mean it was like we already used the word it's been insane,
0: yeah, I mean I, I sort of I went to the gym this afternoon and on the way, I was just sort of cycling up to the gym. I thought, ah, I'll just check my LinkedIn account on my phone because it's just been buzzing like crazy. And I'll talk about the numbers and same with you in a minute. And I got logged out and then I thought, what's going on? Why have I been logged out of my LinkedIn? So I sort of jumped back in the house quickly. (laughs) (laughs) This has already happened to me. And you had that horrible sort of screen. It's a
2: weird sinking feeling though, isn't it? Like, Oh. oh no.
0: Your account has been temporarily deactivated or suspended. I don't know what the words are because it' a high level of activity. It looks like you're using an automation bot, which I'm not. Here's the deal: I've had so many people contact me asking for this report. I've been busy contacting people on LinkedIn and messaging them back and sending them this link. It probably looks like a bot. You know, I'm probably behaving yeah. like a bot.
2: <laughs> yeah, but like, isn't this isn't this like one of the drawbacks of? Um of like social media, is that if somebody called you and left you a message, right? I'm talking like 30 years ago. Hey, right. Graham, this is Michael. You know, you're not at your desk right now, so please call me back. You know, you get back to your desk. There'd be a sense of urgency, but no like sense of immediacy, right? Hmm. But now if somebody pings you on social media and it doesn't matter if it's LinkedIn or wherever, you want to respond immediately. Yeah. like Th- They expect like it right? Really immediately because they, they're expecting it as well. And if you don't, right? So that's part of the game. Is you're like, I've got to do this right away. And then yeah. another one pops in, and another one pops in. And you're like, Oh my god, I'm behind. And you start moving faster. And I guess from there, automated algorithmic systems, you start looking like a robot.
0: Yeah, behaving like one. So I, which I,
2: is just weird.
0: Well, the thing is, I put this part two up, part two of the report up on LinkedIn as a, as a sort of a, a heads up for everybody on my network on LinkedIn who was interested in getting part two before we released it this week. A lot of people had part one already, so they were all in there saying, yeah, send me part two. And the thing just blew up. I've had, it's been up for over a day. I've had 110,000 views on this LinkedIn post and over 400 comments. And the problem is, Michael, is that up to about 12 hours, the first 12 hours, that's fine. I was answering all the comments. But like the last 12
2: hours... It's not been
0: possible. Yeah, I've just been sort of doing one every 10 minutes just so I don't break the system and get caught up in the algorithm again. So all these people are sort of, you know, commenting from like 10 hours back and thinking, whatever happened to that PDF? So if you're listening and you requested part two and you still haven't got it by the time that this thing goes, this podcast goes out, my apologies, LinkedIn has got me marked. I can't get around to. I felt like declaring LinkedIn bankruptcy
2: at some point. I just said I couldn't. I can't meet my commitments. But here's but here's the funny thing: my Twitter account got shut down yesterday.
0: Yeah, that was strange, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, and I, it's not like I have fifty thousand followers. I don't even have a thousand. And when I came, and they wouldn't let me back in. And here's the thing, though, right? There's no one to call. There's no one to write to. Right. From the and this is the irony, right? Is that on their side, probably just like on the LinkedIn side. It's a bot telling you you're a bot, right? <laughs> Isn't that weird? That's the
0: irony, right? Is a guy, yeah, just pressing a button, or a bot pressing a button?
2: Well, there's someone just doing some mathematics around how quickly yeah. you're responding, and there's no there's no sort of leeway for oh my god, maybe that guy's just really like excited and aggressive about responding to people on his thing, and even my Twitter thing, I still don't know why. And I don't know if there's any connection between what you were doing on LinkedIn and what I was doing on Twitter. But again, I got that sinking feeling Right. because it was on, it was on one of my phones, right? And I never log out of Twitter on my phone. And I was just sitting there thinking, what do I do now? That's weird. And they ask you to verify your account and stuff like that, right? Yeah, ask me to verify my phone number and stuff. But again, this brings up another really interesting issue. And that is kind of if my Twitter account went away, mm. I just wonder how much I would care. Yeah, Do you, think but you know you're... if my LinkedIn account went away. Yeah, exactly. That that's worrying, isn't
0: it? If they pulled LinkedIn, I mean LinkedIn. I don't know about you, but I use LinkedIn increasingly more every year, and I think there's a big jump in my usage over the last couple of years. In LinkedIn, I think the platform has improved a lot.
2: Yeah, I think it was neglected for a really long time, and I think this is one of those acquisitions, kind of unlike Skype, where you know Microsoft owns LinkedIn, right? Yeah, yeah which you don't think about, at least I don't think about it on a daily basis. Um, but I actually went premium this year, well, last year, right? Hmm. Towards the middle to the end of last year. And I, and I, I think I'll probably do it again this year.
0: Yeah. yeah. useful. I've, I've had premium for a while, but I, sort of po- I wasn't actually interested in who was looking at my profile.
2: Actually, I, wanted to go, I want to go in a little bit more detail because I posted, so you and I did this sort of split test, right, where yeah. you posted first and you got up to 100 or something thousand views. I just posted this morning.
1: Uh-huh.
2: Kind of the same thing, different network, and I'm almost at 2,000 views. About, it's about 200 an hour, maybe about 170, 180 an hour. Yeah. But here's yeah. what's really interesting for me is the cities. where We talk a lot in our report about cities, right, and why cities matter. Mm-hmm. And it seems like LinkedIn kind of cares as well. At least you get some city granularity. Who's looking at your stuff? Yeah. So two of my top cities are in Asia, right? Bangkok, which is where I live, so it's kind of irrelevant. And then Jakarta in Indonesia. But after that, it's Sydney, San Francisco, London, New York, Tokyo, Mumbai, and Bengaluru. And that, to me, is almost as fascinating.
1: Hmm.
2: I don't know. Just the city breakdown is really interesting. So, you know, obviously, Sydney, San Francisco, London, New York, not in Asia. Right. And remember... Those markets, I call them markets, right? But Sydney's been open all day, but San Francisco, Mm -hmm. London, New York really haven't been open as like trading markets or business markets because I did it at 7 o'clock in the morning, which would be 7 o'clock at night in New York. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: I don't know. Just the whole concept is really interesting. And it also stands to reason that you and I have completely different networks as well.
0: Well, here's the thing. That part two report post that I put up this week, I'm just having a look at my city analysis, just as you're going through yours. Yep. Here's, here's my top four cities: London. Tell me.
2: Yep, London. But that's weird because you live in Tokyo.
0: Right, right. But I'm from yeah. London, right? But so London. Yeah, I guess. New York, San Francisco, Sydney. <laughs> well, what does that tell you, though? I mean, that's just phenomenal because this is a report about Asia, right? I mean, number five is Bangalore, Bengaluru, right? But yeah. But that's fascinating because. It, You know, even like I'm looking down the list, you've got like now you've got Mumbai, Paris, Jakarta, Delhi, right? There's no Tokyo, there's no Bangkok, no Singapore, right? Which is where a lot of my network is, right? But it's just fascinating. It just goes to show that people are interested in this Asian topic. And I wonder, even if you went back a year, two years, three years, what the kind of breakdown would have been. I'm sure it would have been very different because people now are thinking, Asia, I've got to think about this stuff now, right?
2: Well, this gets back to one of the things that we talked about, right? It's like if you're an investor and if you look at my, so we we talked about cities a little bit, but if you look at company names, Hmm. so my top company name is Chilindo. Wow, you mean the think about that.
0: Basically. Yeah, the Bangkok company,
2: the startup, yeah. right? They're doing about, according to them and according to the interview that we did with Casper Bo Jensen, right? About $100 million of revenue just in Thailand alone. Yeah. This is a really interesting company. But on top of that, after that, it's Accenture, Standard Chartered, City, IBM, right. Nielsen. Think about it, Nielsen.
0: Research company, right?
2: Yeah, but media research company. I think yep. that's fascinating. HSBC, Ernst Young, and then Uber. That's like my top 10 or whatever that is, however many numbers that is. But that to me is fascinating because it gets back to that thing we were talking about. And that is, there was a whole concept of Silicon Valley and earning outsized returns, right, in the venture capital business in Silicon Valley. And that's why people originally, you know, back in the late 80s and early 90s, invested in hedge funds. It was an alternative asset class. And they were using that alternative asset class to earn outsized returns, chasing yield, for lack of a better term. But once that yield arbitrage got taken out just as there became more and more hedge funds people started looking at other asset classes whether it was private equity or venture capital and then you sort of got the rise of the sexiness of the venture capitalists, whether Mm. it was sequoia or anderson horowitz or those teams you know excel partners in the united states and now i think the market's actually catching up to one of the things that you and i have been talking about and that is You know, people have been investing in China. It's pretty crowded. We'll talk about how it's more crowded than the rest of Asia when we get to a couple of the slides in the report. Um, But now people are talking about venture capital and they're talking about it globally. And when they talk about it globally and they're starting to look for outsized returns, where are they looking? Hmm. Right? And I I think that's showing up in our LinkedIn connectivity in the companies that are looking at the stuff that we're doing, but also in the sheer numbers, okay? So if you just look at... The number of people that have been paying attention to the report that we put out over the last two weeks, it's 200,000. And I think that there's some overlap, but not complete overlap for people that are looking at the report, both from you mm. and from me. And that's interesting as well, no?
0: Yeah, for sure. And I find it fascinating as well that more than half the people are outside of Asia.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that are paying attention to what we're doing. right? And I, like I wonder what your company breakdown is as well.
0: Yeah, I was just looking at that whilst you're going through it. So number one is Ernst & Young, interestingly. Um, that is interesting, actually. But, you know, I would put them in with all the, you know, no disrespect, but all those sort of like large vanilla-flavoured IT service companies. So yeah, Ernst & Young. fair enough. Uh, Ernst & Young are number one, and then you've got Amazon, IBM, Microsoft, Accenture. So it's pretty much Yeah, that group of IT services company who, you know, they have their enterprise teams and their sales teams and whatever, and they're probably, you know, involved in so many different sectors and verticals that you can imagine that. I don't know why Ernst & Young are top, to be honest, but I can imagine all the other ones are, are, you know, Asia is the key focus for them in many of these departments, right?
2: Yeah, it is, right. I mean, it makes a certain amount of sense and it's tech as well, right? So it's going to be the biggest driving business. I think one of the things... You know, going all the way back to something that Mark Andreessen said a few years ago, software is eating the world. And what it really means is that every business is a tech business. Yeah. Every single business. Yeah. Is it an
0: interesting? one for you, Michael, tell me Goldman Sachs, 167 people from Goldman
2: Sachs. What on your list?
0: Yeah. The only person wow. I know from Goldman Sachs who worked at Goldman Sachs, I know a few actually, but who had, you know, who I know well is you. But 167 people from GS, right, looking at my report. I mean, that's fascinating, because I, I I don't know. I mean, you've worked inside the machine, but I tend to find that, unless they're analysts, people who work in that sort of business don't tend to look outside a lot. They're so busy doing their own thing, aren't they?
2: Yeah, and there, at least when I was at Goldman Sachs, there was an attitude of, I think it was really interesting, right? Because I worked at, back in the day, I worked at Morgan Stanley as well, and when we were at Morgan Stanley, we considered our only competitor globally to be Goldman Sachs. And when I worked at Goldman Sachs, we considered our only competitor globally to be Goldman Sachs. So it tells you the way, <laughs> it tells you the way we felt about everybody else. Right. Um, and you know, Goldman, to be fair, has done a really good job over the past five or six years. Actually, now it's 10 years, I would say, of turning themselves into a massive tech company. And that transition was already taking place when I was there. We spent a ton of money building technology. And I think that's continuing a pace, if not accelerating, to be yeah. fair. Yeah, you see, like in the old days, you, you could go to Harvard, get an MBA and get a job on a trading desk. But now you really have to go to MIT or Stanford, be a computer scientist and understand business and then get a job on a trading desk. Because if you can't program your way out of a problem, you're not going to solve that problem. That's their feeling on this. At least that's, what, that's how it's been explained to me. And that's the type of stuff we were looking at even when I was there 10 years ago.
0: Yeah. It's fascinating, the change. So, well, I mean, if, if you're from any of these companies, it'd be interesting. You can tweet us at Asia Tech Pod and let us know what it is yeah. that you found interesting about the report. We're always welcoming feedback. So it's been an interesting week. And just sort of by the seat of my pants, I've made it to the end of that sort of first few days, that first 48 <laughs> hours with my LinkedIn account intact. But Michael has now published a similar kind of update on LinkedIn himself. So there's no guarantee that you're going to be around in 24 hours, right?
2: Yeah, and I'm thinking that the last time I did this, right, so I got 15, 16, I think it was in total like 17,000 looks on mine. That was after you did yours, which you got over 100,000, right? But I didn't get any messages from LinkedIn the same way you did. It'll be interesting to see how this happens because my growth in the people that are viewing the report now, this time as opposed to last week, is actually higher. Yeah. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see like how this thing plays out. We're already way ahead of where we were. Um, a week ago when we did the first part of this report.
0: Yeah. And do you want to talk about the videos as well? Because that was a a fun and interesting addition to the report as well that we've been working on this week. I mean, talking about LinkedIn as a great marketing platform, we decided to dip our toes in the water of videos. How how did you find that the first week? Because you knocked out a couple of videos. I've knocked out a couple. What was your results like?
2: Yeah, so I I think one of the things that we've learned and – you know, particularly with all the election cycle in the United States last year, is that from a media perspective and from a journalism perspective, people are, there's a lot of pushback and feedback that people are not trusting what's going on on Facebook so much. And that the way people have built networks there
1: mm.
2: has been very different than the way people have built networks on LinkedIn. And I think what that means is you just get a truer audience. And I found that the video response, if you do it in a way that's authentic, right? this is a word that people overuse, but I think, and you and I have talked about this a little bit offline. But I think if you just, you know, if you put a suit on and comb your hair and make sure you're perfectly clean shaven and like sit down in a room that looks like an office at a fancy desk and start broadcasting, I don't think anybody's going to care. Mm. But you, re- you may remember last year, you know, some guy was sitting in his office and like his kid, his daughter came in. Oh yeah, that little girl just came that was in awesome. and she's like daddy, and then the wife came the in. The wife came running belly- in afterwards, yeah. That thing went viral and people started paying attention to that guy. And my my guess is that while you don't want to necessarily do that, something close to just being real is okay. We know plenty of other people that do that and they've been very successful at it. And I think LinkedIn is actually starting to be a place where people see that it really is a professional gathering, right? Mm -hmm. So if Facebook is literally, from from my perspective, like standing in the middle of the town square and just screaming at the top of your lungs trying to get attention, you know, LinkedIn is really like – being at a conference and giving a presentation. Yeah. If you have to make a comparison. But I find it a really great way to do it. And I think that people are actually watching the videos and engaging with the videos as well. A minute, two minutes at the most, right? Just so people pay attention. I mean, what's your feeling?
0: Yeah, definitely. Best piece of advice ever given to me in marketing was don't make two versions of yourself. It's always tough because, you know, you and I, a little bit older, we grew up in an era where... There always was two versions. So if you looked at the silver screen, people were quite polished, weren't they? I mean, you did yeah, sort of yep. rock up into the silver screen and you had you're unshaven and, you know, just wearing a T shirt and as as I am most days when I work, right? right to be honest. Right. And a pair of shorts or whatever. You couldn't do that on T V. So, you know, if you were the expert that was wheeled out to talk about something, you couldn't appear like that. You had to be, you know, well-groomed and you had to have the suit on that's what we expected and you couldn't certainly couldn't do it in your back office in the home right and there was a time isn't it when people started working at home say like in the 90s people started working at home but they would hide the fact that they worked at home so when people said oh you know where's your office They said, oh i've got an office in town which is just sort of a virtual office or an address right 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 but now you know i find that you can get more work done outside of the office at home than you in your home office than you can in an office, right? There's no distractions, there's no office politics, there's no commute, you just get focused, right? So, you know, why not then that come across in the video? And I think the video is sort of like the the slowest moving part of all of that kind of chain of expectations, isn't it? People now say, oh, actually, this guy can get on video and it's quite obvious he's at home, but that's cool. And he, cause I'm just listening to what this guy's got to say, right?
2: Yeah. I think people are happy too. Like, I think there are plenty of people who ask me on a daily basis. So are you, cause I used to have an office, right? And I used to have an office in, you know, obviously in an office building and I would take meetings there, whether it was venture capitalists coming in town or whomever startup people, I'd meet them in my office and you know, I cycle through a group of people that I see. And if I don't see them for six months or so, one of the first questions they ask me is, are you still in that office? Mm. And I always say no, and nobody seems to be that disappointed right. exactly if that makes sense right so no no one cares no one it's not some sort of black mark or some puck mark against you. People are just really happy like oh, awesome, so you 're here, like, whether it 's a coffee shop or that type of thing. nobody cares and yeah. and I think that that's a I think that's a secular change in how people are working, one of the other topics that we 've talked about a lot over time, right
0: yeah well, if you've seen any of the videos that Michael and I have produced on LinkedIn. They're about a minute long, and there's often an unshaven expert appealing appearing on the screen. That would be either Michael or myself. But the point is <laughs> is that the point we're trying to get across is the information, right, and the opinion. So, interested to hear your feedback. Thanks to everybody that's commented on them so far and shared them. And a lot of people shared them as well. That was kind of interesting. I found that, you know, people... You know, because it was a one minute long video, people found it easy to share because it was a simple one pointer that they could help reinforce, you know, something that they were interested in. Right. So, yeah, keep the information and the, uh, the comments coming on the videos. We'd love to hear your feedback and, you know, see how we can take it from there. So it's all good starting point with the video. Hopefully that will become a regular feature.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a, and I think it's a great way to communicate with people that, you know, some of the stuff that we do is long form. This podcast is long form and I think that's important as well. But there is a way to um to do short form as well and I think mm-hmm. that works too.
0: Great. Well, we survived the week. Should we jump into the report? Yeah, let's talk a little
2: bit about that.
0: What was causing all the problem in the first place? All the hullabaloo, the
2: palaver, right? Yeah, a little bit of that exactly what was all and the fuss so, about well so I want to talk about this just for one more second so there was a little bit of pinging noise in the background for me yeah and that was my phone just like people still ping me on LinkedIn <laughs> and on Facebook for the report so I'm turning it off <laughs> but just so you know that's what that was that was live that was
0: live it exactly. Was the cold first. Yeah, exactly
2: <laughs> it's now off okay where do you want to start you want to let's talk let's, let's talk a little bit about this report what makes it different than yeah. the previous one that we did you know what, what's different in in section two than we did in section one I think it's really important right
0: yeah well last week if you listen to ATP 520 we introduced as a heads up on this report to give you a flavor what it was about it was about you know what makes a great startup city what we want to talk about today is this Slide 30, effectively, if you've got the report in front of you, have a look at slide 30, which is the Startup City Matrix, which is really about understanding, trying to map out Asia and put all the cities in a matrix, a quadrant, effectively, so you can understand what the flow is. So if you're interested in trends, you can front-run the trend, effectively. You can anticipate what the market's doing there. So I think this is the key in Report 2, this Startup City Matrix, because it helps us explain the whole number of different facets of the startup ecosystem in Asia, such as, you know, where is the capital moving to next? Not where is the capital now? I mean, everybody knows the capital's in China, but where's it going next? So that's the key. The startup city metrics it's slide 30. You can see the quadrant there. And we sort of break it down in slide 32 into the four areas, which are frontier, front running, market momentum, and market plateau in those four stages. Should we talk about to, what that means in terms of what it means in capital and so on?
2: Yeah, I do. I want to talk about slide thirty, okay? And we, you know, because I, w- I want to focus on this a little bit more, and I'll, I'll tell you why. So, I had a meeting with somebody today, and we were talking about, you know, this, but just the overall idea about like why Asia does matter. And how people are really starting to pay attention. And, you know, this is a guy that's been living in China, spent some time in Chiang Mai, was in Singapore last week. So he's been all over the region and very involved in sort of the startup scenes and ecosystem across the region. Mm -hmm. And when I showed him, you know, he hadn't seen part two yet because he's more in my network than in yours. And I showed this to him, you know, sitting down having a cup of coffee. And he was like, oh, you just did one of those charts. And I'm like, no, no, it looks like that. But this is actually a different way to look at the quadrants. And the closer we looked at it, the more impressed he was. Remember, he spent most of his time in China. Right, And he the first place your eye goes on this chart, it's a number four. But really, you should start at number one, I think. So what does it mean? This is not just a stage. This is a stage of investment, it looks like to me, right? So if I start down at the bottom, it's early. And you can tell the GDP per capita because that's what the size of the bubble is as well. So in the bottom right-hand corner, you're talking about Manila Mm
1: -hmm. and Ho
2: Chi Minh City. And let's just jump above to the number four where it's crowded. Beijing, Shenzhen, and Shanghai. And I think this is really sort of one of the main points that we're trying to make is that China's important. It's a gigantic market. But as we were talking about kind of all last year, you know, if there's one person working on an idea in Singapore, there are probably 25,000 people working on them in China.
1: Yeah.
2: And from an investment perspective, just from an investment perspective, right, it just means more money is getting invested in China. Which means that your ability to earn outsized returns, something we talked about earlier, is just going to be lower. It doesn't mean it's not possible. Right, and remember, I was talking to a guy who was essentially based in China, and he made that face at me first, like, you don't know what you're talking about. And then he kind of paused and said, Yeah, yeah, if you're just doing it on a comparative or on a relative basis, and that's why quadrant number two here is actually really interesting, emerging.
1: Mm. Right?
2: these are cities where there's a these are cities where there is a tech ecosystem, there's a tech infrastructure. And yet, there's still a massive opportunity there. And Jakarta is a really great example of this. Seoul, too, you'd expect it to be further ahead. But because of the way, you know, Samsung is like 20-something percent of the GDP in Korea, which means that the startup space is going to be really different. And we talked about this before. Hong Kong, because of the bubble size, has a decent-sized GDP in that city. But it's hard because if you want to build a startup there— And again, I was at the the Bangkok Venture Club meeting this last week, last Thursday, I can't remember. And there was a guy who was from Hong Kong who was here trying to raise money. And I said, you should be able to raise money in Hong Kong really easily. And he said, there's plenty of money there, but most of it's still going to existing businesses and manufacturing businesses, not to software businesses. And I think that that's also the case. You can see all the way to the left in that quadrant, Tokyo and Fukuoka as well. But just the mere fact that they're there, I think, is important. But what does that tell you? Jakarta, as we've been talking about, and Bangkok, which sits just on the other side of that dividing line between sort of emerging and accelerating, with GDPs per capita, so GDP in the cities, almost the same, that's where your two biggest opportunities, mm-hmm. Taipei would make an argument about it, that maybe the opportunity is just as good, in Singapore as well. But the other interesting thing about this is that If you look about it, if you look at this in the context of this type of quadrant-based chart, it's really telling you that if you want to make an investment in a startup city in Asia, uh, my guess is what it's really saying is that if you want to make a later stage investment, Series B, Series C, you probably want to invest in Shenzhen or Shanghai and Beijing. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. If you want to take more risk and have a bigger outsized return, you're going to put your money in Bangkok because it's accelerating and it just means that there's a massive opportunity for business building, right? Because what that Jakarta um, bubble tells you is that there aren't enough startups in Jakarta yet. Mm. And I, so I think this whole quadrant analysis is going to be really interesting. And the more we go through this report, I think the more people are going to figure out that this is going to be sort of one of the defining factors of what this report is telling you on a city-by-city basis. What do you think?
0: Yeah, let's put it into the context. I mean, you're a trader. You like to use the word crowded trade, don't you? So if you think of that yeah. last stage of development. So there's four stages from really what frontier markets to the crowded markets where it's beginning to plateau where... You know, as you said, the 25,000 guys doing that same thing that maybe you could find, you're the only guy doing it in a place like Jakarta, right? So that's the fascinating thing is that, you know, if you look at it in terms of investment, it makes sense because now the news is reflecting this, isn't it? Look at this. I mean, if you go to slide 35 in the report, you know, the headline there is China's road to world domination begins in Southeast Asia.
2: Right which is counterintuitive right if you if you're not thinking about it too much exactly. but it it actually makes a perfect it actually makes perfect sense
0: well well explain that to us in terms of outsized returns because you know if China is you know it it checks all the boxes, it has the capital, it has the huge domestic market, it has the advanced consumer base, it has you know the middle classes it has the payment platforms et cetera et cetera et cetera it has everything checked right, and it has the talent accelerators all the the pieces are in place. Why then, if you were looking for big returns, would you say, actually, maybe China's not the best for my money?
2: Well, be, again, because you're getting in at an earlier stage. So in the rest of the region, and again, you have to go back to even just the previous page, right? So China is moving their risk capital into Southeast Asia. So they themselves, whether it's Tencent or Alibaba or JD or any of the big Chinese internet companies are saying – There's been a ton of growth here already and there will continue to be growth, but the speed of that growth is going to be much faster, right? The acceleration is going to be much faster in Southeast Asia and then potentially in Northeast Asia as well. And that's why they're taking their money and coming out and buying businesses like Alibaba and investing in Southeast Asia. So the fact that the fact is, we talk about from a trading perspective, right? You don't want to be in a trade that's crowded even if there is some upside there because the more people that invest, the more people that sort of put their money into that particular asset and asset class. We talked about it last week. The, the arbitrage is going to get taken out of that market mm. and it looks to me like the arbitrage is just thinning and thinning and thinning in China. Even, so even people that are running accelerators in China. So what's one of the best accelerators? We'll get to that later, Right, But the SOSV team right through China Accelerator and William Bao Bean and those guys, you know they're in China, but you know, I talked to um, the QLC, right? so the Quarter life Crisis team, and you know one of the things that they tell me is they're thinking about moving. You'll hear it in the interview that we did last week, but they're thinking about moving now. That they've been in China for a year and a half or two years, they're thinking about moving to Europe. And the reason why is because you can be anywhere in the world to run the business, which means that just the interesting thing is that what the China accelerator people are doing is not only investing in companies that are only going to be in China. And a lot of Chinese companies are looking to expand into the rest of the region, meaning into the rest of Asia. And what that means is that as that money moves slowly but surely into their first location, which the news is telling us, this is not us telling us, right? This is what TechCrunch? Just saying that this is going to – and the Asian review, that this stuff is going to come into Southeast Asia. And for those of us that have been putting our money into Southeast Asia for the past five or six years, it just means that the investment returns there for people that are already in is going to accelerate as well. And that's really important.
0: So does that have a difference at the the, the startup level, at the accelerator level? Because it's you know we're talking about people at Alibaba, JD, et cetera, and their investments, right? But if you are a, a startup in an accelerator, et cetera – would you actually experience it would you now say okay look i'm in china i have to go out of china to be successful now because if i stick around in china i'm just going to come up against all kinds of competition not just for my products but also you know in terms of capital competition for my idea right so will that now be a pressure that they'll feel you know you come out the accelerator and you think got to get out of china
2: Yeah, look, I think one of the things that a lot of these startup companies are learning when they're in Shanghai or Shenzhen or in Beijing or some of the other 15 cities in China that are bigger than New York City, I think what they're finding is that because the competition there is so intense, that again, in relative terms, when they not leave physically, but when they start to move or expand their businesses outside of China – all of the difficulties and all of the sort of challenges that they encountered when they were in China will help them grow in a place where there's just less competition. Like, think about something in China, I forget the name of the business, I think it's QQ, I can't remember, but where they do this streaming thing with gifts, yeah. right? So it's just video streaming, somebody sits on the other side of the camera, and you can pay them with gifts or in money. Mm-hmm. And this is all completely legitimate. But that business model doesn't necessarily exist yet in Southeast Asia. It's just starting to happen. So if you wanted to compete with that business in China, it's probably impossible.
1: Mm.
2: But you could probably develop that business in China, learn from the things that they've done there, and then bring that into Southeast Asia because no, there's very little or less relative competition for sure. And I think companies are definitely finding that. Right? So that was one of the things that QLC said to me, right? You have to understand the way the QLC business started. It start, started as a business – In Australia, they're Australian founders, okay, and they started something called Couchero, so Vintage Furniture Sales. Mm -hmm. And they realized they moved to Singapore because that's where they figured the money was. And then they realized in Southeast Asia that it just wasn't a gigantic market for that. And then they moved to China to build this business that they're building now. And the intensity of the competition helped them do two things. One, raise money. And two, understand that now they had to build their businesses globally. Mm. So
0: what about – there's a lot of people in our network who have a very defined focus on China. and It makes complete sense because it's such a huge market. And now there's an increasing amount of external interest in China as a market which people can tap, not just as, you know, for the consumers, but also for investment and so on. And, you know, it's a place that people could possibly relocate to as well. So what we're saying is front running that trend. What What does it mean for them? Because are we at a stage, I mean, if you took like, put this in a trade term like with Bitcoin price I and mean, Bitcoin went well over fifteen thousand dollars and fell back down to ten you know it's sort of that bubble has burst a little bit and now now that the taxi drivers are recommended Bitcoin, we know that's kind of over right in terms that. goes <laughs> yeah. but it's kind of like maybe we're sort of at four thousand five thousand dollars Bitcoin where sure there's still a long long way to go there's still a lot of depth in that market there's still plenty of value in that market, but you know at some point. Know, the better returns are going to be elsewhere so if you are one of these people who have a very strong focus on China what does that mean does it mean that you should be thinking about elsewhere or what
2: yeah I mean I think it means you just need to diversify but this is one of the things about trading any kind of market is you cannot be – unless you're just going to fix yourself. So there were traders in Tokyo who used to do this. They would just trade five banks. So if they were trading stocks on the Tokyo Stock Exchange, they would come in every day as a proprietary trader. And if there were 1,500 names in the index, they'd ignore almost all of them, and they'd just trade banks. Mm-hmm. But they'd just trade the car sector because that was where they could make a difference. And I think you, you always see similar things happen as markets mature. So you'll have people in China that can focus on, you know, Chinese healthcare because maybe that has a lot of growth. And if you're following the secular changes there, you'll see the Chinese government has set, or, or the insurance sector, right? So those two sectors where there has not been a lot of innovation in the startup space and there's still plenty of room there. But unless you're an expert there and you're on the ground, right? So, again, Excel partners, SOSV, All China Accelerator, unless you're on the ground – in those cities it's going to be hard for you to benefit from those changes right so i think in that sense that's how as a trader that's how it's going to impact what you look at and how you invest and like i said if one person is investing in five companies or 50 people are investing in five companies the return profile is going to be completely different so it makes sense
0: yeah so to go in whether you're an expert selling information and relationships about China or you're investing in China. Just to invest in China alone is perhaps a trade which is coming to a natural end in that cycle where you need to kind of niche down somehow, whether that be, like you said, I mean, you're tying yourself to markets or industries that have, you know, a lot of uh, potential with the growth of the middle classes there, like you say, like insurance and travel and healthcare and so on, education which are naturally sort of associated with that growing middle class, aren't they? Rather than just being a China alone, you've got to find a niche within that and tie yourself to that, whether you're that guy who just trades those five banks. But, you know, just to be that guy alone, whatever it is, just to define yourself in that niche rather than just being, you know, a China expert on its own. That's what I'm kind of thinking, front running that. That means that era is maybe coming to an end, right? And you have to kind of niche down and find something as speciality.
2: Right. And I would say this too, just from an investment perspective, if you're not diversifying your portfolio in an era where information flows relatively freely and your ability to invest not just in different asset classes, but in different geographies, if you're not, if you're not diversifying just from the get go, then you're, you're doing something that's really wrong to begin with. right Right. so if you're running an investment fund so sequoia is a great example of this excel partners is a great example of this there are people on the ground that just invest for them in china but as a business overall and and they'll do that forever because that's important and it should be done in that way but overall they're expanding into southeast asia and then into north asia as well but as an overall portfolio if you look at the company they've never been a one market sort of one currency one vertical business because if you are you, you're just, you're messing up your, your your potential returns. It's just a bad way to invest in any market, right? It's just to have one focus.
0: Mm. Well, th- we'll take a look at Jack Ma this week, and unless you've been sort of living under a stone. You know, every other post on LinkedIn this week was Jack Ma's video at... Economic Yeah, Davos, right? And that's fascinating, isn't it? Because if China was big enough on its own to sustain a business like that, he wouldn't be there you know but he's out there he's in the US promising a million jobs to Donald Trump he's out there buying up platforms across southeast asia and the rest of the world it, that goes to show isn't it that i mean like you said you'd be crazy just to put all your eggs in one basket he's diversifying he's out there building that alibaba brand outside of china because it that's the only way the business can grow long term right he understands yeah. that china's not he, big enough alone
2: no it's not and even so if you look at Let's look at two similar businesses, right? So Amazon took 20 years before it really started going international, Mm -hmm. maybe 18 years, right? They opened up an office in Singapore last year for the first time, okay? And Rakuten, which is sort of an equivalent business to Amazon in Japan that had been very successful, um, just failed at every turn to build that business and expand that business outside of Japan. And they've Mm -hmm. retrenched, actually. But the, their biggest problem is Japan is, has never been a market that's big enough to sustain itself only 100 and something million people and getting smaller because the birth rates are low or negative, right? But they're going to have rock tens of business that's going to run into really big problems, just like Yahoo and just like some of these other businesses that are in Japan. And that's why the really smart companies in Japan like Toyota and Honda have been expanding globally for decades. Mm. And that's why they're never going away. And the Chinese are already starting to see that. And the speed at which they're doing that is actually really important. And it comes full circle to what we were talking about earlier. If you look at all the analysis that you've done as you went through and prepared this report, they're putting their money into Southeast Asia first.
0: Right. Uh, we we could see this with some of the high-profile Chinese uh, startups like the bike-sharing startups, like Mobike and so on, right? You know, yeah, that, yeah. I mean, they really are the embodiment of this this quadrant right that they understand that they have to be outside of china now to keep growing that business because inside of china it's saturated i don't know how many bike sharing startups there are in china at the moment but you know you could throw a stick and probably hit a dozen of them right in your local yeah. town so these guys are outside and they're rapidly expanding not just in southeast asia but all over europe as well so that makes yeah.
2: sense it does, and what was the name of that startup? Did we talk about this maybe a month or two ago? I can't remember. It's so competitive in the sort of dockless bike space that one of the guys or two of the guys, one of the teams that had taken a decent-sized investment, just like vacated. Right. It was just so competitive; they just vaporized and disappeared. Remember, was that blue? B- I don't want to say the wrong name.
0: Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I'm
2: pretty sure I can look well, it up. And the two guys it
0: out. that just kind of went off the map?
2: Yeah, they just right. took it was like forty million or fifty million bucks. I can't remember, but. I think it was like blue bike. I'm looking it up now because that's what the internet lets you do, right? Blue bike China. I don't know if that's the right one, but before I sort of say it.
0: Right. Yeah. There you go. Fascinating. So that's sort of a, a roundup of that that quadrant. So the startup city metrics gives us a heads up on where the market's going, right? And you can apply that to a number of different areas. We talk about the six key components of a successful startup city in Asia, you can apply that matrix to role models as an example. So if you break down those cities, it's interesting that you know each of those cities is kind of at a different development stage when it comes to role models in the startup ecosystem. Like you have the early stage markets, the frontier markets where you know if you took Ho Chi Minh City or Manila, many of those role models locally are sort of expats who have sort of grown out of the expat scene there. But as you sort of move around, Clockwise around the matrix, you start developing celebrity entrepreneurs like you maybe have in Tokyo Rakuten's a good example right Mikitani, yeah yeah, but you you find it in markets like that, you might have Mikitani but you don't have the local grassroots entrepreneurs, like people who are just sort of a few stages up from the average startup right who could yeah. kind of give people you know a clear path which they could follow right, and then you have that third stage where Bangkok and Singapore, where you're starting to get grassroots role models, and then fourth stage in China, where you have a very well developed narrative about role models, but they're maybe not known internationally, right? So, you can apply that metrics to see how things are developing and across all those sort of six components of a successful startup city.
2: Yeah, I think I think this this sort of quadrant based way of looking at the entire you know city by city sort of categorization that you've done it actually ends up being really powerful Mm. right i think it's better than a lot of the ways that other people look at it and i like the way it gets broken down not just by sort of sector i mean not by um by uh you know whether it's crowded or early stage or whatever but you also put the gdp per capita in there because it gives you a sense for scale too right if that makes a certain sense, right? So, if you're looking to invest in a particular city or at a particular time, you can see where the biggest GDP is in any particular city. And I think that that's important for scale and size.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. For sure. I've got a, maybe it's a bit early to throw in a couple of questions. I've got a couple of questions today that came back from the report. I want to maybe bring those up. Is it, do you want to do those now or you still want to talk a bit about the matrix? No,
2: let's do it. Let's answer some questions.
0: Yeah, I got one question. I sorry, I've scribbled these down because I forgot that we were going to do questions today because I was just kind of <laughs> backtracking on the LinkedIn account earlier. We just so. trying to get
2: your LinkedIn stuff set up. Yeah, I know.
0: Yeah, I got one it's interesting. We talk about entertainment and conversation in the report as ways in which uh, you know, how how the startup cities can mature around that startup matrix and how they can evolve and progress around it. I had one comment um and forgive me for the person who commented on this because I haven't got their name attributed to it because I've just been so busy with this report getting it out but it says entertainment has its purpose you know what do we want our events to be boring and there's a bit in there about startup events and how important they are in terms of developing the local startup cities what are your thoughts do you think that you know if it's all about conversation as we suggest it needs to be that we leave out entertainment Entertainment has its role in the startup ecosystem thoughts on that
2: yeah, I mean, and again, maybe it's just me, but I really think that you set a tone, right, by the way you set things up. We we sort of took some of this stuff out, but you bring it up, so I'm going to mention it, right? In other words, if you walk in to a conference or a presentation and there's a disco ball, it's just really out of place,
1: mm-hmm.
2: right? So that's just because what you're setting up is an environment where it's not meant to be serious, mm. Does that make sense? Yep. And, just because you're having, and just because you're having a serious conversation doesn't mean it can't be exciting or interesting and the antithesis of boring.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It just doesn't mean that to, to me and right, I think right. to most serious investors. So the idea, right, for startups is that you're supposed to figure out a way to make big companies, make sustainable companies. And if you're taking venture capital money, seed stage money, angel investor money to make them a proper return.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And if that's what you're going to do, get serious about it. If you just want to take pictures of yourself with a thumbs up afterwards, getting really drunk and having a hangover the next day, first of all, why are you having the second day of a conference? And second of all, like that's not what, that's not the point of bringing people together to make investments. It's just not the way it works anymore. I think we've learned over time that like a few things. One, nobody makes a great decision when they're inebriated. Second of all, nothing good, nothing good happens in the dark, right? So that means if you're partying out at two o'clock in the morning, you're not going to make a great impression on a, on a potential investor if you're a startup founder. And if that's your goal, then that's the wrong way to accomplish that. So this whole concept of is it boring? Maybe, but I, I don't think so. Like I've never been bored having an amazing um, business conversation with someone about potential growth and, and market sizes. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, yeah. I i kind of find it's a similar conversation when people talk about motivating employees isn't it it's like you know to motivate your employees you need to take them on some sort of bonding weekend where they yes they, they bungee jump and or they slide down a slide in the office into a ball pit and stuff you know i found the most the best way to motivate employees from my experience is just to give them meaningful work
2: Right. Yeah, exactly. So I was, it's so funny you mentioned this because I was having this – and I'm sorry to interrupt you no, again. No, but, but I was having this conversation, this exact conversation with somebody yesterday, right? Because a friend of mine was doing some – helping somebody who was doing some consulting work in the human resources side. And someone came to them and said, you know, we're trying to build morale and, um, you know, do that sort of bonding thing. How, what do you think about these programs that sort of take people away for a weekend? And the answer that they gave was it's okay – If it's part of an overall program of building internal morale, which is an everyday, all-day thing at work, and part of that is giving people meaningful work, but if everybody hates where they are and the morale is really low and people don't identify with the company, and then once a year or once every six months you take them out of the office, yeah, like you said, to bungee jump or log roll or whatever it is, they're just going to think that their boss is an idiot anyway regardless. That was, change.
0: that was an easy one. That was an easy one. I, I set that one up for you and you can just sort of tee up that it's one. Sorry. Whack it in a home run. I'm gonna give you a more difficult one now, Michael. I don't think I challenged you enough for that question. This <laughs> okay question this is an interesting one. I often think about this and um thank you to Sunil Batia for sending me this question. Um and by the way you can tweet us questions at Asia Tech Pod anything about the report, parts one and part two. So he said, when you talk about Asia, you're talking about top down startup ecosystems. Startup ecosystems, sorry, start, new line. Startup ecosystems aren't built by governments, they're built by local grassroots entrepreneurs. Silicon Valley took 40 years to build. That isn't actually a question, it's just a statement. But I think it's a powerful statement that, you know, Asia, the criticism of Asia, rightly or wrongly, is that it's very much been a top-down startup ecosystem, in many ways, I suppose the government has been a core component in this, right? What are your thoughts? Is that the way to build an ecosystem? Is that fair? Is Asia a top-down startup ecosystem, which you pull the government out, it will just fall apart?
2: So I would have agreed with you until the last part of that. I think if you take the government out, it won't fall apart. But I think you know ecosystems get built by necessity, and there was a necessity, at least at the early stage of this, to play catch-up. Right. So you're trying to catch up to 40 years of investment in the United States. So in the same way that Singapore as a city state spent years trying to catch up to the West, which they did in an amazing way over Mm -hmm. a 40 or 50 year period of time, they looked at what was going on in the innovation space, just like Dubai did and the United United Arab Emirates did. And they said, okay. We see what's happening here. It's going to require, or the government believes that it's going to require some, not intervention, but some participation from government agencies that are best positioned to accelerate that process, for lack of a better term. And I think to the extent that whether it's magic and cradle in Malaysia, um, <clears throat> the Thailand 4.0 initiative in Thailand, and you know we talked about it, the NRF and the IDA and the MDA programs that the Singaporean government has sponsored over the past five or ten years – I think that's really important but again you know this is this is the perfect example of you know give a man a fish he eats for a day teach him yeah. how to fish and and he eats for life and I think that you know sorry for being slightly trite but I think the idea is that that safety net or that net that the governments have put there locally and regionally they're going to disappear by definition um organically because mm-hmm again, on a secular basis, the innovation that's taking place separate from what governments are doing is just going to overwhelm what governments can do because governments make decisions really slowly and individuals and participants who actually have an ax to grind are going to make those decisions much faster and the governments will look on with joy and just say, okay, I don't think there's anything else we need to do to accelerate it, but we can continue to support it in places where tax policy, immigration policy, um, you know, company forming policy, all those things which are still developing require the attention of the government. And let's go back to this. I think I mentioned this last week, but let's talk about it again. I was at a canadian chamber of commerce meeting it was a multi-chamber meeting but the canadian chamber of commerce sponsored it it was a woman from the thai government sitting on stage talking about uh, regulations in the regulatory environment and she said something like that in thailand there are three thousand or six thousand i can't remember but thousands of regulations some of which are legacy they're just left over nobody even knows they're there but sometimes they rear their ugly heads and get in the way of people innovating and in korea there are like 300 she said yeah and what that means is that it allows people in new industries to innovate faster because when they do something, there's not some bureaucrat somewhere saying that violates a regulation, even right. if the regulation itself is an anachronism.
0: There, there is a role for governments to play, isn't it? I think that's the key. I think what you're pointing at is that the best role that a government can play is to clear the decks and make it easier for entrepreneurs, right?
2: Yeah, just to, to get out of the way and to the extent that they can't get out of the way get other people out of the way as well get regulations out of the way and again it doesn't mean you make it a free-for-all but you just want to make it you know a fair and even way to participate
0: yeah uh, this this is part three of the report as well coming up we're going to talk about the home of entrepreneurship and it's really fascinating how in many ways many of the, the initiatives and the organizations that you've talked about michael have done a good job of clearing the decks and getting out of the way and I mean, I only point to the, the World Bank data. This is in part three of the report about hours spent filing taxes. So if you're an entrepreneur, yeah. this is just a good point, isn't it? You know, an entrepreneur in Singapore compared to the U.S. Now, I would have thought that tax returns in the U.S. were pretty, you know, straightforward, but obviously not. 175 hours a year, according to the World Bank, the average entrepreneur spends filing taxes. 175 hours a year. What's that? Four weeks? Compared to Singapore, which is 64 hours. So there's a 100-hour advantage that a Singaporean entrepreneur has over his American counterpart, just not filing yeah, five taxes.
2: Yeah. Five or six days, right? So it's a, it's a long time.
0: Yeah. A
2: week. A, a, week, week, not, yeah, a but, week
0: filing taxes. Can you imagine?
2: <laughs> but again, that, like, and it's not just the tax thing, and I know this is the point you're trying to make. It's just indicative of the environment, right? And that is everything's harder. Right. Overall, Texas is just one manifestation of that difficulty, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I got a quote here. I mean, this is in part three of the report. I don't want to give away too much from part three because I want people to see it in its entirety, but just as a flavor for it, Jim Rogers, who I think opened our, our sort of series when we talked about this report in yep. ATP 510, right? Jim Rogers, the legendary investor. He said, um, I lived in New York for two decades. I very much enjoyed it. Nothing works, hard to get anything done. Whereas in Singapore... Everything works and it's easy to get things done. It's a lot easier to live here. New York is very exciting, but it's not easy. You know, I think in the context of being an entrepreneur, excitement's fine, but, you know, you you don't want sort of on your doorstep, like too much excitement, do you? Because you want to kind of focus on your business, right? And get things done. And sometimes you you like to have things that are a bit stable. So, I mean, Jim Robson has been around town. He's been a few places in the world, so he knows what he's talking about, so...
2: He doesn't look at this manifests itself in where, again, we talked about weeks, if not months ago, where the first autonomous vehicles are going to be tested.
1: Yeah.
2: It's not going to be in New York. Yeah. It's going to be in Singapore if it's not already in Singapore. We called that a year ago. And it's happening. It probably happened six months after we talked about it. But the point is that excitement is great, progress is better.
0: So on that note, We've been talking about part two of the Asia Matters report. If you want to get a hold of it, go to asiatechpodcast.com slash Matters. We've been talking about the maturity of markets and how there's still a way to go, isn't it? There's still work to be done. I mean, as we mentioned, Silicon Valley took 40 years to build. There's still a lot of work to be done in Asia. Handing it over to you, Michael, you like to serve up a, a surprise every week. What have you got for us?
2: Oh, what's the big surprise for today? <laughs> yeah, I did just, I wanted to talk about this because, again, we'd like to talk about the maturity of an ecosystem and, and why that matters and, and how it manifests itself and how we can tell, right? So let's talk about one of the local publications talking about a company in Singapore called 99.co, which is you know heavily touted, heavily invested, by the way, as well, Um I did I can I can go and get the list of investors but I'm not going to go do that now because I don't think that matters but some very prominent investors in there. Um the headline reads Singapore's 99.co buys buys Urban Indo, Indonesia's largest independent property site. Okay. The, there's like there's so many things wrong just with that headline. <laughs> that we could just take that apart over the next like 15 minutes. What's wrong with it? If well, first of all, it, buying is really interesting. But if you look at the story, it says 99.co, Singapore Headquarter, property listing site with prominent investors, don't say who they are, right, has acquired Urban Indo. So is it acquired or bought? In other words, when you buy something, you pay money for it.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You share swap, you do something. When you acquire it, you could just take it.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Do, do you know what I mean? Like I can acquire your pen. I could acquire your chicken at dinner if you weren't eating it. Right. So do you know what I mean? But I don't have to necessarily buy it. But buying means that it's a takeover or an accu- – you know what I mean? It puts it in a positive light. I'm not so sure this is such a positive thing. And it says the largest independent – is that what it says here? Indonesia's largest independent property site. So what is that saying? Because I is bigger. Property Guru is bigger
1: mm.
2: and, and bigger by quite a bit. So it's really like Gerberding does in the middle of the pack – and the other thing it says is that 99.co tried to enter this market but was completely unsuccessful. And the final thing that it doesn't mention anywhere in the headline is, however, one uncertainty surrounding the deal is the departure of the founder and the yeah. CEO. That's a picture. Or... Yeah, and he says – and the quote that they give – and it's from an unnamed source. So there's no like – there's no source for the amount of money that was part of the acquisition. There was no source on the structure of the acquisition and the people talking about it. He parted ways. That's the founder with the company to pursue other interests. But again, why are you acquiring or buying a company where the CEO has no earnout and no nothing that's associated with the company? Um, if If that's supposed to be a big story, right? Like I don't understand why that's a big deal because – There's nothing that's going on there. Like it's not a big story. And if you read on, right, it says if you look at the big picture, there's a consolidation going on in this market. And that also – sorry, there's one other thing here that's really bad, okay? It talks about it being the biggest but just by listings, So Urban Indo's 1.2 million active property listings will join 99.co's, 150,000 in Singapore. The combination of those two is not nearly as big as the other iProperty or Property Guru. Property Guru in total owns two sites with about almost 5 million listings. iProperty has 2.6. And a listing is not a transaction. Mm. And I could build a property site in jakarta or in indonesia tomorrow and scrape all of these sites and have the same number of listings unless it's not a multi-listing country but but i don't think that that's a way to measure like whether this is thing whether this is real or not so to me like it won't be a big surprise if this acquisition or whatever it is just completely makes no sense and just ends up being an albatross around the neck of 99.ca. like how are they going to make money from it and how come the ceo didn't stay around i don't know why this is a headline but it's indicative right of what is it of not, the market stage yeah, of the market stage, like let's get more mature. Can we have a, an article that says 99.co took over Urban Indo at a zero cost or $1, whatever it is, kicked out the CEO because the CEO is no longer interested in running because he was competing against two other sites that were way bigger than his and revenues in Indonesia so far have been lack, you know, lacking, whatever the truth is. So people can actually understand and make an investment decision on what's going on in that market, whether from a vertical perspective or from a horizontal perspective, but there's nothing in here that makes any sense to me. Right. And again, I don't know, but d- there's no quoted source either. It says, yeah. the source shared. <laughs> anyway, well, it won't be a big surprise if this ends up being a problem.
0: Right. And if you prefer Michael's version of events, then let us know. Tweet Asia Tech Pod, feedback, insights. Let us know your take on events, not just of a, a, the big surprise today, but anything we talked about today. Hey, Michael, you're packing your bags?
2: I am. I'm going to be in Singapore February 8th and 9th. Yep. We're setting up a roundtable there. So this is something else that we haven't spoken about. Well, we spoke a little bit about last week, but we're ironing out like, the final details. What we're going to do is we're going to get people together in cities all across Asia. We, are, we started traveling last year. We met a bunch of people, and this year we're going to double down on that. We're going to get people in a room, four or five people, experts in the ecosystem who will have names, who will talk about numbers, and who will give us their perspective. We'll record it, ATP roundtables, Asia Tech podcast roundtables, and we'll get real opinions from real people across the region, excuse me, across the cities And I think that that's going to be a really popular way for people to understand like what real people are really thinking in real Mm -hmm. places that have real companies. Yeah.
0: What sort of questions are you going to ask at the round table?
2: Well, the questions that should be answered by every other sort of technology based journalistic um, outlet. And that is, you know, what are you doing to grow your companies? What are the biggest challenges that you find? How hard was it to really get your investment? You know, there used to be four founders for this company. What happened to the other two? When you said that two other people left, hmm. why did they leave? Is it really to pursue other interests or is it because it's really hard to build a company culture from scratch, right? What do you feel about company diversity as something that you bolt on afterwards or something you build in from the get-go? And also, if you're in Ho Chi Minh or if you're in you know Jakarta, if you're in Singapore, how hard or how easy is it to set it up, if you a company? And if you've been in the company yeah. for four or five years, What's the biggest change you've seen over the past five years? And don't give me a fluffy answer. Give me a real answer. Because things have changed dramatically over the past four or five years. What are those changes? Stuff like that.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's going to be fascinating getting four, five, six people in a room. Just real stories, real insights, you know, from the front line, really. You know, and I think that when you have the ability to put everybody in a room like that and get some good chemistry. So it can break through a lot of the, the BS associated with the industry, isn't it? Like like people sitting at a panel session in an event. I mean, it's all very well, but I think the pressure's on people at those panel sessions not to kind of relax and be a bit personal, isn't it? They're in sort of corporate mode, isn't it? But you sit them in a round table and a cup of coffee and chatting away. It's all good, isn't it? And people, I think, let go a little bit and give, that's what people really want. They want the insights, don't they? They don't want the polished Going back to like the videos from earlier, isn't it? They don't want the yep, polished, yep. the finished, you know, the done deal. People want sort of to go a little bit deeper and know like real human stories. And, you know, people actually there in that city at the front line.
2: Yeah. Like, what do you really think? And I think a lot of people are much more comfortable having a conversation in a roundtable environment as opposed to sitting in front of 400 people in a conference with lights flashing and like videos in the background and a disco ball at the front because they can take themselves more seriously. If it feels like it's a substantive meeting rather than entertainment and trying not to be boring. Yeah.
0: I want to throw something else out there as well, which is
2: tell me. Yeah.
0: I mean, we've been approached as you know, by I won't name the names because it's not finalized yet by people who have great networks in Asia and, are really interested in podcasting, and in particular, building their their profile, because they they love podcasting, they listen to podcasts, they listen to this podcast, they, you know, they listen to a whole bunch of podcasts from around the world, they're into the format, they understand why podcasting is not dying, it's growing very much, it's the format, it's the antithesis of the BuzzFeed 8-second headline, right? It's going deep. It's the long conversation. It's the long form content that people want. Like we said, they want to go deep and hear the stories and so on. So people have come to us and said, hey, look, you know, is there any way we can work together? And one of the projects we're working on is building a podcast network. So those podcasters who, you know, maybe they don't enjoy all the, the heavy lifting stuff. Maybe they just really enjoy recording podcasts and doing the interviews and they don't enjoy so much the editing and, oh, God, I've got to. Sit down and produce this podcast now, they just want to hit record and just chat, which is great because what we've done is the other part we've built the back end, so you know we did one hundred and seventy plus podcasts last year. you know we wouldn't have been able to do that if we were unless we were like pretty damn good at producing these podcasts right, <laughs> and not just yeah. one hundred and seventy podcasts, but booking the guests, following up with the guests, getting referrals, all that stuff right, pushing out to distribution.
2: So yeah, I mean, how about how about fixing the audio? How about stitching together files? How about all the stuff that you know you've automated over that period of time to make it so efficient that it's, it's easy to do?
0: Yeah, imagine it. I mean, that's when you look in traditional media sense. You know, you would take a CNN or an RT or MTV. That's what they do. They just focus on doing that, building the network, and then getting great hosts. On their network. That's what we want to do here in Asia. That's what we want to build the startup podcast network. And I guess now we've played our cards and said to people, "Hey, look! If you're out there and you, you're interested in building your podcast, get in touch with us." And the easiest way to get in touch with us is to connect with us on LinkedIn, tweet us at Asia Tech Pod, or you can go to AsiaTechPodcast slash projects where you might see a whole bunch of ideas like our podcast network, like Michael's roundtables, the stuff that we're working on in the background that may interest you. Go and check it out, asiatechpodcast.com slash projects.
2: Exactly. Good stuff, man.
0: Michael, thank you so much. Thank you, Graham. And good luck with your packing. We're not going um, <laughs> to be in Singapore next week, but we're going to get a good heads up on what the Roundtable is about next week. So maybe that's something we can talk about as well.
2: Yeah, we can talk a little bit more about some of the other projects we're working on as well. Good stuff.
0: Have a good week. Hopefully LinkedIn smiles on us this week favorably. (laughs) We'll see you all next time. You've been listening to Asia Tech
2: Podcast. Find out more at www.asiatechpodcast.com.